Well, good morning. I'm thrilled to be here with you all. Opening your Bibles to Philippians 2, if you will. Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. And first of all, I just want to thank Tony for inviting me to come and to preach. As he said, this church means a lot to me. You all mean a lot to me. Uh, God used the few years that I was here at Michael Memorial to do a lot in my life. And uh, I came down here in the military. I was a CB, so maybe some of you all are CBs as well. Uh, and I, I came down here in 2006, and, and honestly, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, which is why I didn't go to college, because I didn't want to go into debt to not know what I was going to do. I figured I'd rather make a little money not knowing what I'm going to do. And so I went to the military, and, and in my wildest dreams, honestly, never thought I would end up in Gulfport, Mississippi. So God does have a sense of humor. But... I ended up here, and, and I met a friend on a deployment. I, would, I don't know how I would have ever found Michael Memorial except for uh, I met a friend on a deployment, and we got real close, and, and I was raised in a Christian home, and, and when I got into the Navy, I kind of drifted away from that. I stopped going to church. I wasn't reading my Bible. Uh, I was not living the way a Christian would live or should live, and so I got to be friends with this guy named Dan, and, and we got back from deployment, and he said, you know, I'd love for you to come to church with me. I said, okay, I'll come. And now look, I'm preaching to you all. It's amazing what God does through relationships, isn't it? And so I'm thankful for this church because God used this church and a lot of people in this church in a lot of ways in my life to grow me as, as a man of God, to give me direction, and, and to ultimately lead me into ministry. God did a lot of that through this church and through friends here in, in Gulfport. And so I'm thankful for this church, but also... Maybe even more so than that, I'm thankful for this church because I found a wife here. And I don't know where she is. I was trying. She, oh, there she is. There she is. Her name is Samantha, and she is an amazing woman. And she's an incredible mother. Uh, I love to see her with our son, Graham. And I really can't wait to see her with a daughter, although I'm not sure our bank account can handle all the clothes that she's going to buy. Uh, but, but she really is a wonderful woman. And she grew up here, like Tony said, she grew up in, in his youth group. And so I'm so thankful for this church. I, I grew a lot as, as a man of God here, and I found my wife, who's been a, a big part of me becoming who I am. So thankful for this church, and, and I love this church. And, and one of the things that you realize, if you've ever been in love, or if you've ever thought you've been in love, is that love will sometimes lead you to do some crazy things or things that don't make sense to other people. And so one of the things that happened with me is, is I got out of the Navy in 2010, and I knew that God was, was leading me and calling me to do something in ministry. And I didn't really know what that was going to be. But I knew that uh, I should probably go to uh, a Bible college of some sort and start studying. Uh, that's a great place to start if you don't really know what you're doing, but you feel in your heart that God is calling you to ministry, and so that's what I did. I knew that she wanted to go up to Kentucky and go to school, so I figured, well, if I go before her, it's even that much more enticing for her to follow me, right? And so that's what I did. I went in 2010, and I started school, and we did not get married until 2011, so we spent an entire year apart, which was nothing new for us being in the military, uh, but <clears throat> during that year... She was here in Gulfport. I'm in Louisville. It's about 700 miles, about a 10-hour road trip. And every long weekend I had, I was getting in my car and I was driving down to Gulfport, Mississippi. Even if I was only here for a day or a day and a half or two days, I wanted to see her and spend time with her. 
because she meant something to me. She meant a lot to me. And so from, from someone on the outside looking in would probably think, why are you spending every bit of your time off driving 10 hours, wasting so much gas, putting so much wear and tear on your car just to go down there for a day? But see, they don't understand that, that feeling of love that I have that makes all of that not pale in comparison. I don't care about the gas money. I don't care about the wear and tear on my car. I care about seeing this, this woman. And y'all, that changes the way we act, that relationship, how we feel towards another person. And what I want us to see this morning from the book of Philippians is that when we understand how God loves us, what he has done for us, it affects the way we live for him. And so the book of Philippians is fascinating because it's a letter written to a church. We're a church here this morning, are we not? We're gathered here because Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. He's made us new. He's created a new person inside of us. And now we meet together because we have that in common. Because we come here, we want to worship God. We want to be in his presence together. We want to sing to him together. We want to hear the word explained together. And so when we think about a lot of these little New Testament books... They're letters to churches. And for us, being a church, I hope that we understand that, that this has very much significance to us as it did to the original recipients. As a church who's meeting together, worshiping God, Paul writes instruction. And what I want us to see before we even get into chapter 2 is, is we have to understand what, what Paul's focus is for the entire book. Because if we miss that, then, then the chances of us taking what he says in chapter 2 out of context are much greater. So I want you to look with me. We're going to look at a couple of verses in chapter 1. And let's get an idea where Paul is going in his letter. What is, what is his main point? What does he want these people to see? So he begins at the very beginning of chapter 1 by talking about his thankfulness for the church. And in verse 5, he says, Because of your partnership in the gospel... From the first day until now. And so one of the first things he says about his thankfulness towards the church is, you are partners with me in the gospel. That means we're working side by side. We're working together for the sake of the gospel. Okay, keep that in mind. Look down at verse 7. He said, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So again, now Paul is saying, we have partaken of grace together. We've experienced the goodness of God together. And we've done it in ways where you, you've been with me in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the what? The gospel. We're only two verses in, and we're seeing a theme, right? Paul is concerned with the gospel. Look with me at verses 9 through 11, still in chapter 1. And here, Paul is, is writing a prayer for the Philippian church. And he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. 
So the first two verses, Paul is saying, he's focused on the gospel. You were with me. You were partners with me in the gospel. You all, we partook of grace together, okay? You were with me in my imprisonment, and you were with me in defending and confirming the gospel. He says, and now I'm praying that through the gospel, you would live a life that is honoring to Christ. And as he says specifically, that you may approve what is excellent, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through no one other than Christ Jesus. So again, we're we're getting an idea of where Paul's focus is. He's focused on the gospel. He's focused on these people's lives individually. Look with me at verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, in case you don't know, Paul is writing this letter as he sits in prison. This is what's known as a prison letter. And so Paul is writing this, and he writes verse 12, and he says, I am thankful for what has happened to me because it's really served to advance the gospel. People are hearing the gospel that may have never heard it otherwise because I'm in prison, and for that I can rejoice. Again, we're seeing Paul's focus, what he wants, what what he's hoping for. Look at verse 14. He says, And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So again, he says, not only am I thankful to be in prison because people that may have never heard the gospel before are able to hear it, he says, but also it's through my imprisonment that brothers are becoming more bold to speak the word. They're becoming more bold to share the gospel. These are the things that Paul's getting excited about. Look with me at verse 18. He's talking about people who are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, and he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He says there's people that are preaching the gospel to build themselves up. But he says, you know what? Whether they're doing it for wrong motives or right motives, Christ is being proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Look with me at verse 22, this comes right after verse 21, which maybe is familiar to you. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in verse 22, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So he says, if I die, that's better. I go to be with Christ. But if I live, that means fruitful labor. That means there's work to be done. That means I need to get to work because my life is not just about relaxing and waiting until death. Look at verse 25. Paul says, talking about his desire to come and be with the church, he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Again, Paul is concerned about this church growing in their faith, growing in their knowledge of God. He says, I'm I'm concerned about your progress and your joy in the faith. But then we come to verse 27. In verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
So here is the central focus of Paul for the whole letter. He says, I want you all striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's number one priority to the Philippian church is that we be a church that is unified. Now, I've kind of already forgotten about the, uh, the fill in the blanks. I'm sorry. So let's go back and let's fill in the first blank. And the first one is, what's true about God affects the way we live. What's true about God affects the way we live. And we're going to see that here in chapter 2. But in chapter 1, Paul gives us the context and he, he lets us know that he's so concerned with the church at Philippi being united. He's concerned with the church at Philippi being united. So now we've seen in chapter 1 what Paul's theme is. Now in chapter 2, he seems to kind of just randomly go off on a tangent. And now he starts talking about Christ's example of humility. So I want us to read these verses in, in the beginning of chapter 2 real quick. I know there's not our focus. But I want us to see that these are not random verses. Paul is doing something specific here, and we don't want to miss it. So remember, chapter 1 is littered with references to let's be united, let's be focused on the advancement of the gospel, let's be, let's be focused on our own personal holiness, we need to be living for God, and now he says in chapter 2, follow along with me. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. So he's restating what he was just talking about in chapter 1. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And now, starting in verse 5 through verse 11, we see what's called the Christ hymn. This is a famous passage from Paul. In this passage, he, he describes Jesus. He describes the humility of Jesus. He describes what Jesus has done for you and for me. And then in verse 12, where we're going to start on our passage, he begins to talk about why that affects the way you and me live. So look at what he says about Jesus. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, this is what Jesus has done for you and for me. Something that happens if you go to seminary, if you sit in a class, is that it can tend to become academic. And it can tend, you know, you can tend to read the Bible as a textbook. I hope that doesn't happen with you all because 
we need to read this not as this is just something that's true about God. This is a, a true historical fact. This is how much God loves you. He says, verse 6, although Jesus was in the form of God, John 1.1 1, 1 makes it clear that, that Jesus is God, okay? Not just in the form, but, but it's clear that Jesus is God. And he's with God from the very beginning. And he says, although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or to say that another way, he did not count his status as God as something to use to his own advantage. But what did he do? He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. Let me just remind you all, we're talking about the creator of the universe. John 1 also says, talking about Jesus, without him was not anything made that was made. Without Jesus, creation does not exist. He was there with God in the beginning when they spoke everything into existence. This is who we're talking about. He says he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. I don't think y'all heard me. Jesus, the creator of the universe, emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant to serve who? You and me. Wow. He said, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. He was obedient to God in all that he did. He never once lusted. He never once desired something that did not belong to him. He never once was unloving. He never once cared more about his own desires than, than the desires of someone else. He never once put himself as more important than someone else. He perfectly obeyed God the Father and even to the point of death. It was the will of God to kill his own son. And Jesus was obedient even to the point of death. Now look at what he says. Verse 9, therefore. These are, the, these are important words in the Bible. When you see the word therefore, it's not insignificant. Don't just pass over it. It means I'm about to say something which is directly related to what I just said. So Jesus, being God, did not hold his status as God as something to use to his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, was obedient to God, even to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And he has given him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Church, I want you to think about Gulfport, Mississippi as a whole. I want you to think about Mississippi as a whole. I want you to get out a little bit further. Think about the United States as a whole. 
And maybe if you've gone and traveled and been on mission trips or, or been to different countries, think about the world as a whole. Think about all the different people that you've seen. Every single one will one day confess that Jesus is Lord. Every one. Every single one will bow their knee before him. Whether it's now, in this life, or in the next. Does that give us a sense of urgency? Church, there's people out here that are not bowing their knee. We want them to bow the knee now and not later. So here's what Paul says. He writes the the Christ hymn, tells us what, what Jesus has done for us. And now we come to verse 12. And here's our focus this morning. He says, therefore. Now again, it's an important word, right? Therefore. This is not insignificant. What he's about to say is not unrelated to other things that he just said. This is absolutely, because of what he just said, this is true. He says, therefore, my beloved, he loves the Philippian people. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, church, here's where we get to the second fill-in-the-blank. What does it mean to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? This is an interesting phrase that Paul uses. So he just got done explaining to us that his purpose in the book is he wants the gospel to advance through the unity of the church. This is the formula that Paul is, is explaining. The gospel is going to advance through the unity of the church in personal holiness, okay? Now, he gives us the example of Christ's humility, which kind of seems random. How does that fit with advancement of the gospel through the unity of the church? Well, here, verse 12 and following is where Paul is going to really explain this, to pull it all together. But he uses this phrase, work out your own salvation. Now, we're Christians that believe the Bible, and I hope that you are sitting here this morning and you absolutely believe that we are saved by grace through faith, because we are. So I want us to look back at the book right before Philippians, Ephesians. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, some very popular verses, verses 8 and 9. And what I want us to see is that This is Paul, same author, and he's going to talk specifically about faith, grace, and works, and and how do they work together? Let's look, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and then we'll look at verse 10. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's by grace, this means it's a gift of God. We did not deserve this. God offered this freely out of his own kindness, out of his own goodness. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. So it's offered by God as a free gift, but it must be received with faith. We must have faith in God. 
Now he says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So even just verse 8 is very clear. It's by grace. It's through faith. It's not your own doing. Not a single person here is here as a Christian this morning because of anything that you have done. Don't be fooled into thinking that. You have done nothing for your salvation. Verse 9, he says it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. He reiterates This is not a result of something that you have done or something that I have done. It's not that we've had perfect church attendance for the last 20 years, and because of that, God's thinking, all right, I guess I have to let him in. This is not because we've woken up at 5 in the morning for the last 30 years and read our Bible and prayed every single morning. That will not save you. Only Jesus can. But then we come to verse 10. So in verses 8 and 9, he's been very, very clear that it's not by works that we're saved. It's by grace, as a free gift, and it's through faith. In verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, this is important that we understand verses 8, 9, and 10. We are not saved by our working. We are saved to do works. It's the next fill in the blank. We do not work to be saved. We work because we are saved. He's very clear in verse 10, where his workmanship were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now look back with me at Philippians. So in verse 12, right after he explains the Christ hymn, what Christ has done for us, now he says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So now we have to answer the question, what does it mean to work out your salvation? We know and and we're clear on one thing. Paul's not telling us that we're working for our salvation. He's clear about that. From Ephesians, from from Philippians, from, from lots of other books, he's clear on that. But what he's also clear on is that If we have been saved, if you've believed on Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, what God has done is created a new heart in you. He has recreated you for good works. So what is a good work? A good work is something that's commanded to us by God. Because otherwise, how do we determine what's good? How do we know what's actually a good work and what's not? I'm sure you've heard people talk all the time, maybe in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, wherever it is. Yeah, did you hear about uh, old Joey passed away? Sad. He was a good guy. Man, he did a lot of good. He was always mowing those people's yards for them. He was always helping out. You know, they had a leak in the pipe. He would be the first one there. He's always helping out. Good guy. 
You see, we all look at things like that as good, and they are. But good by whose standard? See, God determines ultimately what is good. And he has commanded us to do what is right and to do what is good. You remember in chapter 1 where some of those verses were dealing with our personal holiness? Paul's prayer for them was that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. Paul is wanting these people to live a holy life. To live righteously. To live in obedience to the king. So now if we understand what it means to work out our own salvation, it means that we're walking in these good works which God has prepared for us. So we understand that good works or doing a good work is something that is commanded to us by God. It's walking in obedience to Him, but there's a second aspect to a good work. It must be done in faith. We can do the things that God commands us all day. I think about Rescue 100. James chapter 1, verse 27. Care for the widows and the orphans, right? That's, that's probably the, the verse that you all use to, to think of Rescue 100. It's a command in the Bible, plain and simple. God is telling us to care for those who are less fortunate, those who are without a family, those who are without anyone to care for them and love them. But church, if we don't do it in faith, God is not pleased. Hebrews 11, chapter, Hebrews 11 verse 6 Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Church, there is a lot of good things that we can be doing. But if we're doing it without faith, it's not pleasing to God. We've got to be trusting Him, believing Him as we do what we do, as we walk in obedience to the truth. We've got to be trusting in Him. So now, he says that we need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. What he's talking about specifically is, church, if we're going to be unified, if we're going to be a church that's on the same page with the same goal in mind, heading in the same direction, that's going to take work. That's why I titled my sermon, Do Work. Because yesterday, there was a bunch of college football games on. And I love college football. And I hope some of you all do too. And I'm kind of glad that Alabama lost. But that's beside the point. But when you watch college football, you've got 11 guys on each side of the ball on the field at any given time. And the goal is, for the offense, you need to get the ball to the other side of the field and get it in the end zone and score points. And you've got to score more points than the other team. And if you're the defense, stop that. Don't let that happen. And so you can't just grab 11 random guys throw them on a football field, and expect for them to be awesome. That's not how you're going to beat a team like Alabama. Because what it takes to be a good football team is you've got to have 11 different guys that have the same goal in mind. Now, they're doing different things. They're performing very different functions. The linemen are doing very different things from the receivers and the running backs and the quarterback. But guess what? If everyone's not doing their job, not going to go well. So think about how difficult it is just to get 11 dudes working together to start moving a football down the field. Now look at, look at this room. 
A lot more than 11 people in here. And I'm sure there are people who are not here this week because they're traveling. Think about if this church right now, this building, were filled with every single person who's a member of this church. Now think about we've got to get every single person with the same goal in mind going in the same direction. That's not easy, is it? Unity in the church is not going to happen by accident. Church, we're not going to be unified for the advancement of the gospel by accident or just because we happen to show up on a Sunday and a Wednesday. It's going to take work. And what kind of work is it going to take is the question. Well, let's let's think about what Paul just told us about Christ. He showed us the example of his what? Humility. Church, it's going to take a whole lot of humility for us to be unified, moving in the same direction. Chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, look not... Uh, let them not each look, look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Church, that doesn't come natural to any of us. When I wake up in the morning, it is not my natural first thought, I need to treat Samantha as more significant than myself. That's just me being honest with you. Church, we're sinful. One of the problems with, with everybody who's part of a church is that we sin. But that's not the biggest problem. We all sin. Our problem oftentimes is that we don't want to deal with our sin. We don't want to repent of our sin. We don't want to confess our sin. And a lot of times, you know what that leads to? It leads to churches splitting. It leads to people leaving with a bad taste in their mouth. Because somebody in the church or multiple people in the church are not counting others more significant than their self. Church, here is the the framework for us to be unified as a church. Paul says we've got to look at the example of Christ and see what he has done for us, understand how he has humbled himself to serve us, and we, every single one in this room, must live that way towards everyone else. That is how we will be unified as a church, walking in the same direction, wanting the advancement of the gospel. And church, it's hard to get there. Here's why Paul says we've got to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he says. Fear and trembling. Popular phrase in the Old Testament, Paul uses this phrase to talk to the Corinthians, saying, I came to you in fear and in trembling. This is an attitude that we have towards God. We understand that he is so much greater than us. He is so much more holy and righteous than us that we don't deserve to be in his presence, but by his grace, he allows us to be. Church, we don't treat God as if he's just our homie. We treat him as if he is our savior and our king. We humble ourselves before him. We confess our sins to him. We trust that as verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you. 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Church, here's the good news. Paul has just told us that we've got to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. There's work that we've got to do. We've got to start repenting of our sins. We've, st- we've got to start getting over ourselves and serving others. Now that seems like a tall task. Paul says, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Two things here. Three, really. If you're a believer, if you are trusting in Christ, God is working in your life. He is at work in you right now, doing two things. He's giving you a will to, understand, to, to obey him and to worship him. And he's working in you to actually do it. See, we look at this and we think, man, I've, I've got to work out my own salvation. I'm not really even sure where I would start. Paul says, if you're a Christian believing in God, he's already at work doing that. He's already giving you a desire to want unity in the church, to want to repent of your sins, to want to live holy and righteous. And he's working in you to give you the ability to actually do it. Now look at the very end of this verse. For his good pleasure. God takes pleasure at working in his people. God takes pleasure at working in his people. I hope that's encouraging to you. Because there are a lot of times where I look at my own life and I realize the, the sinfulness of my own heart and I realize, why would God want to do anything with me? God takes pleasure at working in his people. And God, working in his people, desires that we would become more and more unified for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. Look with me at verse 14. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast, to the word of life. Church, Paul has already laid out his hopes for the church. He wants the church to be united. He wants the church to be dying to self and serving one another as Jesus has served us. And he says, church, we need to work out our own salvation. We need to get to work understanding that God has forgiven us of our sins and he is at work in us. We need to get to work to bring about unity in the church, meaning we're repenting of our sins, we're turning away from our own selfish desires to serve others. And now, Paul tells us why this is so important. Remember, one of his themes is the advancement of the gospel, He says, I'm thankful to be in prison because it's advancing the gospel. So look with me again. He says, now, church, reminder, do all things without grumbling or disputing. There's a lot of people in this room. I'm sure there's even more people that are part of this church that aren't here. As you go out into Gulfport, 
I'm sure that many of you all know some of the same people that aren't members of this church. Perhaps you've been witnessing to a friend for a long time, and they have still yet to believe in Jesus to come to church to try it out. Perhaps, maybe some of you work in the same place, like my friend Dan and I, when I first came here. Perhaps that's how you both ended up here, through a friend. Think about yourself at your workplace. If you do things with grumbling and complaining, is that a good witness, not just to Jesus, but to our, this church? If people know, oh man, that guy, yeah, he's, he's a member of Michael Memorial, and I hear that they're doing so much good, and, but yet you can't do anything without complaining and whining. Does that look good on the church? Does that give them a good taste of the church? No. Worse yet, what about if you're arguing and complaining with other people in the church and people outside the church are aware of this? Their response is going to be, man, that church ain't nothing but a bunch of people that are just whining and complaining, can't get along, can't get over themselves. I don't want any part of that. Paul says, church... We need to do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Church, I don't need to explain that very much. You all know that we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Turn the news on for five minutes and you will be fully aware that our our world is messed up. You know why Paul is saying this? He says, we are the hope for that world. We, Michael Memorial Baptist Church, are the hope for the twisted and crooked world outside of our doors. In your workplace, in your neighborhood, at your grocery store, wherever it is you go, there is evil and wicked all around. And Paul is saying, church, we are to be the light. And if we're not, how are they going to bow the knee to Jesus? Here's where Paul is getting to his point. He says, church, we've got to be unified in order to advance the gospel. Because if we're too busy arguing and complaining amongst each other, we're not going to be focused on there are people outside of here that need to know Jesus and don't. And he says, we're not going to shine as lights in the world. Paul says, personal holiness is absolutely paramount if we as a church are going to be unified and advance the gospel. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. That's a high calling, church. That's a high calling. He says, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now look at what he says in verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life. Here's the secret ingredient. Here's the secret sauce, if you will. Holding fast to the word of life. He's talking about this. He says, church, 
Do you want to do all things without grumbling and disputing? Do you want to live as blameless, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation? And do you want to shine as lights in that area? you got to cling to the word of life. You've got to. It's our only hope. Church, if we think that we're just going to be a good person, and so when we go out into the world, we're going to shine real bright for Jesus, we're mistaken. We're fooling ourselves. Paul says if you want to shine like a light, you've got to come back and recharge. Every battery or every flashlight that you use will run out of power at some point. And if you never replace the batteries or recharge the batteries, it's not going to work. How many of us are trying to live as a light in the world without ever opening the Bible aside from Sundays? Our, our idea as we go out into the world is, I'm going to be a light for Jesus today. I'm going to be a light for Jesus. I'm going to be a light for Jesus. But yet we have so little faith in God. We know so little about him because we're solely dependent on a Sunday morning sermon to know everything there is to know in this book. Church, this is in English. There are a lot of different versions of it in English. Surely there's one that you can read and comprehend and understand. And Paul is saying, church, if we, if the church at Philippi, if the church at Michael Memorial is going to be lights in the world, advancing the gospel, church, we got to cling to the word. Because it's in the word that our faith is going to grow. It's in the world that our confidence in God is going to grow. And we're going to be more and more convinced each and every day that we spend in the Word that there are people who need it. And we don't care if they make fun of us. We don't care if they call us weirdos or Bible thumpers or whatever. Call me whatever. Paul says, I'm happy to be in prison because now people are hearing about the gospel. I don't care what people think of me. I don't care what people say about me. They will bow the knee to Jesus. I want them to do it now and not later. Now he, he starts to say something that he said before. Look at the end of verse 16. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul says, if you, the church at Philippi, are clinging to the word of life for everything that you do, if you're trusting in God and being a light in the world, then I, Paul, will not be ashamed at all that my life was in vain. Paul started this church at Philippi. Paul loves this church at Philippi. And Paul wants the church at Philippi to be so in love with God to so adore him, to so understand what he's done for them that their whole life is lived in obedience to him. Their whole life is lived in telling others about him. Paul says, when that happens, I can be confident that I did not live my life in vain. I didn't go to prison in vain. I didn't write this letter in vain. I didn't preach my heart out in vain. It mattered. It was worth it. 
Every last moment was worth it. Church, you can say the same. If you live your life clinging to the word of God. If you live your whole life clinging to the word of life, holding fast, holding on with all of your strength, you at the end of your life will be able to say, it was not in vain. I may not have had a whole lot of friends. I may not have had a whole lot of money. I may not have had a whole lot of success, but it was absolutely worth it. My life was not in vain. It mattered. Because people who may have never heard about Jesus and bowed the knee to him, they have. Because I was obedient to Christ. Verse 17, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is just an echo of Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, if I die here in prison, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. My life was not lived in vain. My life meant something. And church, yours does too. It absolutely does. What's awesome about the church is that as, as I look over all these faces, there are some I recognize, some that I don't. But there are people from all walks of life. Tomorrow morning when you all go back to work, there's going to be some of you that are in fancy towers with executives. There's going to be some of you that may be riding a garbage truck, picking up garbage throughout the city. There's going to be some of you that are all over the place. Think about the impact on the city of Gulfport if every single one of us is clinging to the word of God and is shining like a light for Jesus in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Think about how full this sanctuary could be. If all of us are united with the same focus in mind, the advancement of the gospel. I don't care if I lose my job. I don't care if people make fun of me. I don't care if I get kicked out of my house or my apartment. At the end of my life, I can look back and say it was all worth it. Now, before we finish, I want, you to show, I want to show you what's so awesome about the second chapter of Philippians. Because right after this, when you read it, it almost sounds like Paul is ending his letter. But there's still two chapters left. And he talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus. He says, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. And then also in verse 25, he says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my needs. So now Paul is saying, now I, I want to send two people to you. I want to send you Timothy, and I want to send you Epaphroditus. Here's what, here's what Paul's doing. The first part of chapter 2, Paul says, church, look at Jesus. Look at him. Look what he's done. Look how he gave up his status as God and emptied himself and became a servant 
for you. He was obedient to God even to the point of death. Because of that, God has given him a name that's above every name. Everybody will confess that he is Lord. Everybody will bow the knee to him. Church, amazing. Now, verses 12 uh, 12 through 18, he says, church, because that's true, because of what Jesus has done, it absolutely affects how you and I live. Church, we can't be selfish, self-centered people that are always concerned about our own interests. We've got to be like Jesus, dying to ourselves and serving others. And now he says, I'm going to send you two people who are living exactly that way. Look at what he says about Timothy. Verse 20, he says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He says, I want to send Timothy to you all because church, he embodies what it means to live like Jesus in humility. He's not concerned about his own interests. He's not worried about himself. He's worried about you. He's worried about the interests of Jesus Christ. And church, I want you to see that in a man and emulate that. Look at what he says about Epaphroditus. Verse 26, he says, He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Verse 30. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Church, he says, look at what Jesus has done. Because of what Jesus has done, here's how we need to live. He says, now look at two people who are living exactly that way. Timothy's not concerned about his own welfare. He's concerned about the things of Jesus Christ. Epaphroditus, church, he served me almost to the point of death. He was willing to risk his life for the gospel because it's worth it. Incredible, isn't it? Church, we need to be reminded this morning of what Jesus has done for us. We need to know that as he sat in heaven with God, he did not count his status as God as something to use to his own advantage. But rather, he laid it aside for you and for me. And church, because that's true, how do we not live as lights in the world? Hating our sin repenting of our sin, serving other people as he served us. And church, I pray that as the years go by, this church will be filled with more and more people that are living like Timothy and Epaphroditus. That Tony could tell a new member, I want you to go and observe this person. 
I want you to live like they live. They're not concerned about their own interests. They're willing to work to the point of death for the sake of the gospel.